Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to take it with me. If you have a printed copy as I prefer or even a device with your app, whether you're here with us live or those of you joining us in our online audience, I want you to find the book of Jeremiah. And when you find the book of Jeremiah, I want you to find the 11th chapter. Jeremiah chapter 11, I'm going to preach to you this morning from verse 18 down through the 6th verse of the 12th chapter. As you're turning there, what a time of worship we've already had this morning. One of the most meaningful things about worship driven by the Bible is that it does not discontinue after the music stops. I don't have a beautiful voice like the men and women who were on this stage a few moments ago, but I hold a beautiful voice in the Word of God. In fact, we just sang the Word of God, the blessing, that song that Carrie Job has made again, a revival in and among our Christian community of worshipers, sang so beautifully by our team, is nothing more than singing the Scriptures and a blessing that we want upon each of us. And one of the greatest blessings is the blessing of hearing the Word of God. And that's what I want to do for you this morning. I want you and I to listen and to hear and to apply the Word of God. For those of you who are guests, that's what we do. We're preaching through the book of Jeremiah verse by verse. We began last August and we continue on this journey milking God's Word for all of its spiritual, nutritional value. And I want to teach you that no matter where you turn in the Bible, if you understand it in its context, if you dig in and you read it with an open heart, God can speak to you just as he spoke to the original audience. Jeremiah is a prophet, and there's some similarities between his day and our day. I began months ago giving you those reasons, and we condensed them down to five statements, if you will. I'll show those to you once again. In Jeremiah's day and in our day, it's been a long time since people have seen a real revival. Jeremiah's society, the world he lived in, and the world we live in seems to be struggling to hold itself together. The basic tenets and values that ought to unify all of us seem to be in question. There are many people in Jeremiah's day, including Jeremiah at times, who looked up at God and said, God, I don't know what to do. And I've sensed that same emotion in my own heart. And I see it in the leadership around us. There are many people in Jeremiah's day who don't understand their past. They don't understand the history of God's people. That's true today. And finally, we know that many are discouraged and depressed at an all-time high. Anxiety is up and peace is down. And this was true in Jeremiah's day as well. In fact, he prophesied for about 40 years from 627 to 584 B.C. This was the time in between the fall of the great kingdoms of God and the total destruction of Jerusalem that would be brought about by the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, as recorded in history. And Jeremiah's job was to stand in front of his people and declare God's judgment and to call people to turn back to the Lord. Now, I know that many who visit a church on Valentine's Day thought, well, I thought today's message would be about 
Valentine's Day. I did wear red. Many of you did as well. I hope if you have the privilege of having a sweetheart in your life, you enjoyed a meal out or maybe a bouquet of roses, some chocolates. Perhaps you'll just, guys, give her an opportunity to take a nap this afternoon. That is her love language, especially once she wears the title of mother. When we think about Valentine's, there's a lot of legend around where it came from. There are at least three theories. One of the ones that circulated the most, I don't know if it's true, it's just one of the folk legends, is about a priest named Valentinus who in the second century pushed against the emperor Claudius II or Claudius II. He had put a ban on marriage because single men had to join the Roman army. Needed more soldiers, so he banned marriage for a period of time. And legend says that the priest there, Valentinus, decided that since marriage was a sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church, and it is, that he was not going to abide by that rule and he would secretly marry people. Well, they called him. And on February 14th, 269 A.D., he supposedly was executed by Rome. And the legend says that people who he had married in secret sent notes talking about how much their love meant to them, appealing to Rome to not execute him. And those notes were the first valentines. Now, that's one of several legends. I don't know if it's true, but I do think it's interesting that wrapped up in this idea of romantic love is conflict, is tension. And we all know that's where relationships end up, don't they? If you've ever met anybody that says, well, we never argue, I always want to say, well, y'all hadn't been together very long. All of you know what it's like to have that teenage girl or even that teenage son come busting in from a date upset, and you know that with their little girlfriend or their little boyfriend, they've had their first spat. And then as things get more serious, as people get older and they begin to contemplate marriage and a ring is exchanged, a proposal is accepted, there's always that moment in the engagement when things are hanging on by a thread and there is a lover's Coral, All Pro Dad's a great resource. AllProDad.com is a Christian resource about being a dad. And, and they list the top 10 reasons couples fight. Reason number one, money. There for a long time in Laurel and I's life, we were delivered from this because we didn't have any. Reason number two is communication. I didn't make the list. I always try to look for outside sources. Nothing about this list is profound, but I want to bring to bear the wisdom of other people when I stand before you in this sacred place, this pulpit. I think communication is probably number one in my book because communications break down between men and women because we're men and women. goes something like this. What's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Honey, something's wrong. Nothing. Honey, please tell me. The fact that I have to tell you <laughs> is what's wrong. But honey, we went to the counselor. He said I need to be more sensitive to your needs. What are your needs? The fact that you don't know my needs is my greatest need. Then at some point, in surrender, husbands, we say the most important words of any marriage maintenance. Tell me what you want me to do. 
In fact, tell me how to think about what you want me to do and what you want me to say. And in that moment of total surrender, we think we're on the precipice of resolution. And she says, well, if I have to tell you, I don't want to say anything. And it goes on and on. And the longer you're married, the more you learn the nuances, the idiosyncrasies, the way in which you have to deal with everybody's personality. Some people argue over children. Again, if you have enough children for long enough, we don't really do that anymore. It's us against them. We argue with them. We, we want them to leave. They're sucking the life out of everything that we had once. We enjoy. And then couples argue over intimacy. Their little ears in the room. We'll keep moving. A lot of comedy there. I'll leave. Time. <laughs> it argues over time. Couples argue six. Over priorities, what's important to you and what's important to me. Uh, All pro dad said some couples argue over religion. I think the application among an audience predominantly, I, I hope you identify yourself as a Christ follower. And if you don't know him personally, as Jeff said a few moments ago, I hope you come into a saving relationship with Christ. And so the arguments in a room like this and those of you in our online audience would certainly not be related to the teachings of Christianity. Oftentimes the tension comes in one couple, one member of the couple, being more committed more devoted than the other and then there's politics and jealousy and of course the past the past it can come up and it almost never helps when it is brought up we know this this is nothing new we know that when you're in a long-term relationship with someone when you're married to your spouse you recognize there's a difference between the ideal of valentine's cards and the romantic thoughts of hallmark movie endings and the reality of doing life together and then on the other side of that revelation when you get to a point of maturity and for those of you who are in a relationship right now and you're struggling i want you to know there's hope when you get to a point and you recognize and you grow and you get some wisdom, you begin to appreciate the good and the bad. You begin to appreciate that you're married to an imperfect person and that she married an imperfect man or, you, or, she, or he married an imperfect woman. And in the midst of your imperfections, you find the grace of God is sufficient and you actually grow closer when you hit your tension and you hit your complications and you hit your conflict head on and you deal with it. This is what healthy marriages do. This is not a marriage sermon, but here's a little marriage nugget of wisdom. The marriages in our church that are healthiest are the ones that don't avoid conflict or pretend it doesn't exist. They deal with the conflict and they deal with the complaints openly and honestly with a humble and gracious heart. But to turn it on its head, you know, that's not just true of romantic relationships. It's not just true of this intimate bond that God creates between a man and a woman at the day they exchange vows. It's not only true of siblings or, or people who work together. It's true of your relationship with God. You see, one of the problems, I think, with modern presentation of the gospel is that they present the gospel as this wonderful relationship with the Lord that once we step into it, there's no more tension. There's no more conflict. There's no more struggle. There's no more doubt. There's no more discouragement. There's no more, dare we say, spiritual depression. But that's not the Bible I hold. In fact, I don't find anybody in the Bible, including Jesus, who followed the will of the Father free from conflict, free from tension, 
free from struggle. And when we suffer or we see injustice around us, if we're people who come to the Lord with these issues, it can create tension in our relationship with him. This is where we find Jeremiah today. We begin to unpack several through the next 10 or 15 chapters points of time where Jeremiah is struggling with the activity or the inactivity of God. And his relationship is filled with conflict and manifests itself in complaints to God. And, and, and if we try to look through the lens of the Bible with rose-colored lenses, we miss out that this raw emotion of a man trying to serve God when it's difficult is more applicable to our lives than anybody who blows spiritual sunshine at us saying if you just follow God, then all conflicts, all complaints, all tension, and all persecution will go away. We don't know from the text when exactly this moment happened in Jeremiah's life. In fact, in prophetic literature, honestly, a great deal of prophetic literature is the literal words of Jeremiah, which were inspired by God and taken from a multitude of sermons and moments and compiled into the book of Jeremiah. And so while we don't know exactly the point this takes place in his ministry chronologically, what we do know is that Jeremiah has come to a point where he realized through the revelation of God that he's not popular anymore and that some people actually want him dead. Not fired, not dismissed, they want him dead. Look what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 18. The Lord made it known to me. So God had revealed this to Jeremiah, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. And then he uses language that we've heard before. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised, devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that this name be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause to help us in our minds. I of recognizing the truth of this text. Let's do it in four very brief divisions. The first two have to do with the complaint. First is the plot against the prophet. Jeremiah is serving the Lord. He's delivering a hard message. If you've been with me over the last year, you know that some of the most difficult and challenging words of repentance and turning from sin and turning back to God are in the first 11 chapters of the book of Jeremiah. So he's doing what he's asked to do, and it is often not easy. And then God reveals to him, Jeremiah... Your life is in danger. Again, not your ministry, not your post, not your position. Your very life is in danger. When Jeremiah realizes this, he begins to lament a little bit. Look in verse 19. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. That may sound familiar to you. That is a same language that Isaiah 53 uses prophesying about the Messiah. 
He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There are two pictures here that you need to get. One is the innocence of the lamb. Lambs are not aggressive animals. They're not animals that eat other animals. They're not animals that harm people. I doubt seriously in the history of humanity has there been a lamb commit a homicide. Lambs are not dangerous animals. In fact, it's just the opposite. They are quite helpless animals. They need the care of their mother, the flock, and often the shepherd and the shepherd's dog to keep them safe. But there's also something else. Lambs are beautiful. They're cuddly. Some of you have taken your children to petting zoos, and they've petted, they've petted lambs. They've cared for them. There are certain animals we don't find at petting zoos. Not a lot of rattlesnakes at petting zoos. We typically don't take our children to pet crocodiles. But when it comes to lambs and calves and little ponies and furry bunnies, these are wonderful for children to enjoy experiencing things from God's creative and created animal kingdom. So in the first century, it's true in Jesus' day and way back before the first century that children would play with the lambs and lambs would be around the children. And so when a lamb was led to slaughter, not only was it innocent, it had no clue where it was going. It never seen the slaughter's knife, never knew the butcher's block. It didn't know. And so it walked quietly without complaining. Now drop that in the Messianic text. This is true of Christ. Christ innocently, never harming anyone, knew exactly where he was going, but did not say a word, did not push back for the will of the Father. This language in Jeremiah is not trying to compare Jeremiah to Jesus, but he is saying, I haven't done anything to these people. In fact, I'm just doing what you told me to do. Like I, I haven't started a war. We have no incidents where we think Jeremiah has tried to take someone else's life. Jeremiah's not leading a political coup. He's not attempting by force or by legal manipulation. He's simply standing up before his people and saying, Thus saith the Lord. And what happens when we begin to read in verse 19, second phrase, is they turn against him. They say, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. If they just wanted to destroy the fruit to push the metaphor, they would have said, let's shut the prophet up. But they said, there's one good way to make sure the prophet never bears fruit again. The same way that you go to an apple tree. If you pick all the apples for a period of time, that tree has no apples. But if you don't cut the tree down, guess what happens next year? There will be more apples. They said, listen, we don't need to just shut him up. We need to shut him down and shut him out and shut him off. And the way to do that is to kill him. And the Bible says in verse 19, let us cut, off, cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. We want to kill him, his message, and his legacy. Now, Jeremiah turns this over to the Lord, verse 20, but O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Now, Jeremiah has not got room to be bitter that it's gotten hard. Remember way back in Jeremiah chapter 1, Verse 8, this is way back in August, God calls Jeremiah and says, do not be afraid of them. Now, now why, why would God tell Jeremiah not to be afraid? Well, because God knew the threats were coming. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, we often think, okay, this is that Old Testament gruesome picture. I'm so thankful for Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't have any enemies. The politically correct 
biblically incorrect Jesus that is presented to the world of people trying to mix together all faiths in some universalistic damning soup. Syncretism is the word where you just take all everybody's beliefs and you put them together and you mix it together and you come up with some politically motivated jargon of universalism. That Jesus never is appeared or never given the appearance of ever causing any problem. Do you know what happened right after Jesus preached his first sermon? According to the Bible, not what other people saying. This is what happened. As soon as he gets through preaching, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. Why? So that they could throw him down the cliff. None of you witnessed my first sermon. It was a long time ago. I'm glad you didn't witness my first sermon. In teaching preaching now to young men training for ministry, I've witnessed a lot of first sermons. I'm glad you don't witness most of those either. The truth is every person standing with a Bible in their hand has a lot of nervousness and anxiety. It is a holy task to stand before people. But in the history of the world, I've never known a young man who preached a sermon so bad that the church rose up and said, there's a cliff south of town, let's go throw him off of it. Some of you have sat through some of mine that were so long, you wanted to throw yourself off of a cliff, but you're better for it. In all seriousness, the first time Jesus preached, they wanted to kill him. Listen to me. Biblical preaching should never be popular. Listen now, if you preach the truth of God's word, God's people will love you for it, but the world will not. One of the problems with an anemic, weak American church is that we have more pastors interested in popularity than prophecy. The words of God are incredible words of hope if you surrender to him. But if you do not, they go from bad to worse. Jesus even said, I will be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. There is no in between. And Jeremiah is experiencing that. Remember what Jesus told his disciples just before he was arrested? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That's part of the way our verse of the year begins. John 20, 21, peace I give to you. Peace I come with you too. In the world you will have tribulation. So the night before his arrest, Jesus makes no promise that it's going to be easy. In the world you will have tribulations. Two truths from this first point to think about. Number one, True prophetic preaching will never be popular to a sinful world. But number two, the only guarantee from God about this world, not the next one, is that we will encounter persecution. Now you say, boy, that's a lot of hope on this beautiful Valentine's Day. Well, actually it is hope because it means your suffering makes sense to God. You see, you want to derail people's faith? Preach a false gospel that says to know Jesus is to be absent of sorrow and suffering. Then guess what happens when people experience sorrow and suffering? They think they don't know Jesus and they walk away. So the plot against the prophet sets the stage. 
And then God answers the complaint with a promise to punish. Look how the text unfolds beginning in verse 21. It goes from Jeremiah's poetic complaint to God's simple, straightforward answer. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth. Now, Anathoth, or Anathoth, is Jeremiah's hometown. That's where he's from, right? We all like to believe we're legends in our hometown, right? Every summer I make the same joke with my children when we drive through our hometown. I go, man, they've taken my statue down for cleaning again that's at the football field. I keep wanting to show you guys that bus they have of me. They're entering into, the sta- entering into the stadium because I don't know about you guys. The older I get, the better I was. It's a joke. <laughs> my children roll their eyes. They know there's no statue of me. They, they, they know there's no legend, but everybody likes to feel like, man, I was a big deal in my hometown. Some of you had to leave your hometown because you were such a big deal. Those with badges were looking for you. Jeremiah's hometown, Anathoth. This is where he's from. These are his people. These people knew his mama. And God reveals these were the first people to want to take his life. Look what the Bible says. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. And then God answers, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine and none of them shall be left for I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth the year of their punishment. Now, when we think about this, it reminds me of Mark chapter 6, verse 4. You know what Jesus said about his own hometown? A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Can you imagine the pain of this? I mean, it's already a hard task for Jeremiah. Jeremiah's already got the task of telling the nation of God God's timetable of patience is up. That's a hard enough task to do, but to do it without the support of your own people? One of the greatest things that you can ever experience in the Christian life is to walk through difficult times with the love and the support of other Christians. But one of the loneliest places in all the world to be is to walk through a difficult time and feel as though you are alone and isolated, and even those whom you trusted and cared about have found a way to turn against you. This is where Jeremiah is. But there's something else here. Some people have said, well now, should Jeremiah be setting this example? I mean, didn't Jesus on the cross, as they were driving the nails in his wrists and his ankles, say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I know I enjoy preaching that message. It's a powerful passage of Scripture to see the grace of God. And are we to not turn the other cheek? Are we to not forgive our enemies? Does the Bible not teach us that? Yes, it does. But notice what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah never takes vengeance into his own hands. We don't have any account in this text of Jeremiah going and beginning an assault against his enemies. Jeremiah takes his anger, his frustration, and his hurt straight to the Lord. It reminds me of what Paul teaches. What does Paul teach in the book of Romans? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, let me speak to a Christian community. I I doubt very seriously that, that I have many of you who are contemplating taking out physical violent vengeance on someone who's wronged your family. You may have felt it before. 
But for the most part, you tend to understand how to control those emotions. But what about the venom you spew on social media? What about the whisper of comments and gossips that you share in your inner circle and you call them prayer requests? You see, we have to be real careful when someone hurts us or wrongs us to check ourselves and to ask ourselves, is what I'm about to say constructive, helpful, beneficial, protective? Or am I, with the words of my mouth, throwing the daggers of vengeance that I really want God to do? Don't miss that this conversation is between Jeremiah and God and not Jeremiah and his enemies. And God said, I will take care of them. Now notice what else is in the text. No timeline. God didn't tell Jeremiah when. Doesn't have to. You may never know how God is going to bring justice in a situation. You, you don't, or I, neither of us, have the sovereign ability to see his total timeline. And let me ask you to flip the table for just a moment. Have you ever been wrong where you know you wronged someone? I have. I, I hope you are willing to admit you have. Been times and situations, conversations, behaviors, actions, where you were on the wrong side of a decision, a word. You have hurt someone else. If you deny that, you're hurting your church by not being honest with yourself. We have all been wrong. And aren't we grateful that in those moments when we're wrong, God chooses to wait on vengeance. The patience of God is often the tool he uses alongside the conviction of his spirit to show us we're wrong. And for many of us, that leads to the cumbersome, painful, yet so rewarding experience of going back and reconciling. Walking into someone's presence and saying, I was wrong. Forgive me. I handled that wrong. I thought about that wrong. It could have been years ago when I was in a completely different place spiritually and I made this decision. I chose this action and my heart breaks every time I think about it. And sister, brother, friend, neighbor, relative, family member, co-worker, I want you to know I'm sorry and I'm wrong. If God's vengeance was always immediate, we'd never see reconciliation. And God's promise to Jeremiah is basically God saying, I got it. Now, I wish that were enough for Jeremiah, but Jeremiah's got a problem. His problem is, is that he's thinking about a specific situation specific only to him. None of us have been threatened by the men of Anathoth. They don't exist anymore, okay? This is him and God dealing with a plot against his life. I've tried to make application to your life, but this is Jeremiah's situation. But then Jeremiah steps into a more universal struggle. By the way, God, while we're talking, it's not just about the men of Anathoth. Why is it that you seem to let all wicked people prosper? In fact, if we were going to give this a division, I would say this is Jeremiah's problem with prosperity. Look what happens beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. <laughs> Jeremiah says, I'm about to complain. You're righteous, God. 
And I'm glad you're righteous when I can play. Now watch this. Yet I would plead my case before you. So he dropped some legal language. God, in the courtroom of your love, I stand as the attorney pleading my case about a group of people who are being mistreated. Now here comes the question. And this is a question that echoes throughout the scripture and throughout humanity. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Now, if you're honest about your critique of the world, you have to recognize how incredibly applicable that is today. Why is it that wickedness can be signed into law by an executive order? Why is it that we see so many people dividing our country for so many reasons and so many hidden agendas? Why is it that those who seem to grow in power also grow in their lack of fear for the Lord God of the Bible and his risen son, Jesus? Why do they prosper? Now, the good news is, Jeremiah's not alone, and we're not alone in asking this question. Remember Job's lament, Job chapter 21, why do the wicked live? In other words, God, if you just kill all the wicked people, the world would be a wonderful place. Why do the wicked live? Reach old age. He's saying, God, you don't just let them live. Some of them live long lives. And God, not only do they live long lives, you let some of them grow mighty in power. Notice Job is in full assurance that God's in control of all this. You know, we don't believe that God's up in heaven going, yeah, I don't know how these people got this, or I don't, I don't know why this wicked dictator in North Korea acts this way. I, I don't know why there's so much bloodshed in Southeast Asia at times. I, I don't know why there are people who seem to be fascinated with a failed system of government that's uh, 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 the responsibility of untold hundreds of thousands, even millions of lives and now it's become popular again. I, I don't know what. That's not the God of heaven. The God of heaven is not ever wringing his hands and not ever wondering what's taking place. All things, good and evil, happen under the authority of his sovereign control. Though he does not initiate and commit acts of evil, that would be against his character. His sovereign control has allowed for a time his sin-broken creation to exist, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, and he controls and knows all things. Job knew this. Job's not some weak-kneed liberal prophet. Job knew God's in control. So if God is in control, that is statement A, and there is wickedness, that is statement B, then Job gets to that conclusion of C. God knows and allows the wickedness, which leads to question D, if we're building a philosophical argument. Here's the question. Why? Why, why are you doing this? And Job's not alone. Jeremiah's not alone. Habakkuk, same thing. Habakkuk, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Habakkuk even brings up the fact that he's been asking God for a while. And you will not hear or cry to you, violence. You know, Habakkuk's not complaining about somebody changing the color of the carpet or switching up the music at church. He's not complaining about that. He's complaining about violence. Nobody's for violence. In fact, many, many Christians believe in 
pacifism. I'm not a pacifist, but I believe biblically a Christian should avoid violence at all costs. And there are only two reasons that we ever resort to violence. To defend our lives or if we are a part of a just war where all diplomacy has been exhausted and our country needs us to protect its interests so that people are not oppressed. Those are the only two reasons that a Christian should be involved in violence of any way, shape, or form. And, and Habakkuk's screaming, violence, 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 violence. God, how long? And you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk goes on to talk about this over and over in the Scriptures. Why do you idly look at wrong? So we have this dilemma and he's bringing it to bear. Now it gets a little deeper. What does the Bible teach? What did your Sunday school teacher teach you? What did your mama teach you? Your mama taught you. Did you ever hear this before? God honors those who honor him. I've heard that. I believe that. I believe that I need to teach my children that if you sow righteous seeds, decision-making behavior, that you will receive righteous results. This is a good thing. This is the relationship between cause and effect. It's right there in Psalm 1. Look at Psalm 1. I, I love how Psalm 1 says it. Blessed is the man, and this could be man or woman. He's talking about people. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So he says, this is what righteous people don't do. And then he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then listen to the analogy. When a woman or a man plants their life in the law of God, he or she is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. You know, this is where Jesus talked about judging a tree by the fruit it bears. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. Now listen to this. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So Psalm 1, word of God, inerrant, inspired, without, without any incorrect in need for correction, says, if you are righteous and you seek God's will in your life, God will prosper you in certain ways. And when you are wicked, you will fade away. There it is right there in Scripture. Now watch that same language and listen to Jeremiah used what he's seeing against God. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 3 of chapter 12. But you, oh, excuse me, verse 2, you plant them and they take root. Who's the them there? The wicked people. You plant them, Lord, and they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth. <laughs> Jeremiah says, they even tell people you blessed them and far from their heart. Listen, the greatest enemy of Christianity is not the person who doesn't believe in Christianity. They often will tell you that. The greatest enemy to the gospel are people who are quick to mention the name of Jesus but know him not personally. This is what we are seeing in our nation, a nation that is post-Christian. It's post-Christian. When you study the United States, the gospel has come and in many places gone already. We have the first generation of people in places in our country who are not being raised by people who have at least Judeo-Christian values as the foundation of their worldview. I'm not arguing that they're born again or not born again. That's a personal decision. 
But 50, 75 years ago, there was a consensus among people in this nation that we were guided by the Judeo-Christian values that influenced our founders. That doesn't mean all of our founders were born-again Christians, but you can't read the documentation and read the history without seeing it. And now that is being erased. It is gone. And if you want to know what I believe our nation will look like in two or three generations, short nothing of a large-scale revival, just go to Western Europe. This is the direction that we see. In fact, some of the places where church planting is taking root again are in places where the gospel was there 100 years ago and is no longer there. Once I had a layover in Amsterdam, and I spent some time walking around the city, and I came upon this incredibly beautiful cathedral, gorgeous, ornate, stained glass windows, brick, and it was empty. The sign had been taken down. The church was closed. But on the right-hand wall of the church, because it was on a prominent street, vendors had rented space to set up booths to sell various goods. And right there on the outside wall of that dead cavern of what was once a church was an adult bookstore where a vendor was selling pornography. And I stood there and I thought, what a picture of the church coming and not making disciples and leaving within two generations. This is why if we exist to build buildings, stained glass windows, or incredibly well-equipped audio-visual auditoriums, if this is our goal, we're about 100 years from being extinct. But if we will share the faith of Jesus and disciple people and show them how to follow him, then we can help them see that all of the stuff around us are tools so that we grow closer in our relationship with the Lord. And this is where Jeremiah is struggling. He's saying, why does the wickedness seem to win? Why? And then finally, we get the perspective to ponder. God answers Jeremiah, and the answer actually doesn't relieve the tension you think it's going to. Look as we close, beginning in verse 5. If you have raced with men, now this is God talking to Jeremiah, on foot, and they have wearied you, which by the way, I have been wearied by every race I've ever been in. The coach in our school that signed people up to get in races never even talked to me. Nobody ever asked me to be on a track team, not one time. I could run to first. I would rather jog to first because I hit it so far. And I ran after quarterbacks, but never a race. But he says, Jeremiah, if you're running with people on foot and you're weary, how will you compete with horses? Now, let me translate that. Jeremiah, this is God. I understand you're licking your wounds a little bit. It ain't even got hard yet. Before you try to dive into the theological ramifications of understanding my sovereign control of wickedness, back up and remember who you are. I called you to deliver a hard message. And Jeremiah, we're just in chapter 12. Jeremiah, I love you. I called you. I wove you together in the womb of your mother, chapter 1. Jeremiah, suck it up. I never told you it was going to be easy. And if this wears you out, just wait till the opposition continues to build up. He uses the analogy of running with men and horses. It's probably a soldier's analogy of taking on a foot soldier versus taking on a cavalry that's mounted. 
The horses' hooves of Calvary's brought fear in many infantrymen in the ancient world. But then he goes on to use another analogy. Look what he says, second praise of verse 5. And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Jeremiah, you still in town. You struggling, and I've still secured you. What's going to happen when your world turns into a wilderness? Last fall, Lorna and I went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. She is a lucky woman. <laughs> Do you know what we did? We rented bear spray. There are certain trails in and around the Teton National Park that they highly encourage you to take bear spray with you. Laurel said, we have to take the bear spray. We cannot outrun a grizzly. I said, honey, I don't have to outrun the grizzly. <laughs> but then I rented the bear spray because if I were a grizzly and I looked at 115 pounds or me, I choose me, can eat for months. But it is a very sobering thing to be on a mountain trail and look down in the mud and see an old grizzly track, knowing that a bear that weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds and has eight and nine-inch claws that can decapitate a man with one swipe lives there. You're in his house. So you take the bear spray. You go with other people. You make noise. You follow the rules. Your iPhone won't save you. There's no security plan. There's not a chairman of the Grizzly Anti-Attack Committee nearby. It's just you in a thicket. And God says, Jeremiah, listen to me. Right now, you're in the city. You're just getting started. And there's going to become a moment when you are surrounded by wolves and bears and the unknowns of the thickets of the Jordan, which travelers would have to go through when the Jordan got out of its banks because the trail, the road by the river would be covered, and so they would have to veer into the wilderness. And in that time, in that moment, you need to remember, I called you, and I never promised you that wicked would disappear. He goes on to end it in verse 6, For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. And then he says, don't believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. Jeremiah, it's worse than you think. Even the people who still say nice things to you are secretly plotting against you. And then we're reminded of something. We're reminded of the reality that God has not just called us to difficulty. He's promised us it will be a part of our lives if we're serious about following the Lord. In Luke chapter 14 verse 28, Jesus is talking about discipleship and he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost. Let the metaphor be clear. He's saying it will cost you something. So many preachers stand and say Jesus is free. His grace is free. Come get it. He will love you and save you just the way you are. And they should say that. And we do say that. But the walk's not free. When you follow him, he gets your life. He can pour it out, as Paul said, like a drink offering if he chooses to. And this is important for a modern Christian to hear 
Because all I tend to hear are Christians complaining about my rights are being infringed upon. The utopia of the America I created in my mind is changing. And I don't know what my children are going to grow up in. And they spend more time and more energy complaining about worldly leaders than they do recognizing Maybe God is the one who's ordaining the next 50 years be difficult. Maybe it's time for God to purge his church and to separate those who are in because it's popular or politically correct to those who will stand up and say, if the Bible says it, it's true. Jesus saves. And on those two pillars, I will build my life. This is Jeremiah dealing with God and God saying, Jeremiah, I have a plan, and my plan does not mean at this point I will reveal to you my entire plan. So step up, son, and do what I've called you to do. Five truths to leave you with. Here they are. Number one, very quickly. Number one, immediate judgment is not always seen. You know people in your life that are wicked and hurtful. I know there are organizations, there are government, there are mandates. There are some extremely wicked decisions being made right now and I want to see judgment now and it's not always immediate number two eternal judgment is always guaranteed remember this God promises he'll get his vengeance and he does number three the focus of a follower should be on the finished work of Christ and his mission do you know every person that you and I determined to be wicked and evil and anti-God do you know Jesus loved them and died for them our mission is to make that known Number four, it's supposed to be hard. Number five, bring your struggles to God and let him handle vengeance. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage the first century believers and he remembered all those Old Testament followers. And you know what he says in Hebrews chapter 11? He says of them these simple words, they were stoned, sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins and sheep goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. He said, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and of the earth. And all those, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, one of those Old Testament believers got to see Jesus. Since God had provided something better for us, I got to see him and know that he came and lived. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So the New Testament writer says, all those people who faithfully suffered for the cause of God, waiting for the Messiah, are examples to us who faithfully suffer at times, being faithful to the Messiah who's already come, who was needed to perfect us and to make those who believed in his coming perfected in their forward faith. That's powerful. Any tension between you and God this morning? any tension in any relationship in your life and you don't believe God has been doing his part, you know what the application of the text is? Bring all that to the Lord. Stop sulking or running around with a spiritual poochy lip. Bring it to the Lord. Deal with it openly and honestly and recognize that he alone has got it. You be faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, this example from Jeremiah. Every time we open just a portion of it, it cuts us like a knife, but not like a soldier's knife. Your word is a two-edged sword, but it also is the scalpel of a surgeon. It heals us and helps us. 
Church family, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, whether you're watching online or you're sitting with us live, last week was such a blessing. We commented on it during our review of the service and prayer time during staff meeting. It was so good to see the altar filled with people praying, and I want to continue that. So let me tell you what's going to happen. With your eyes closed, your head bowed, in just a moment we're going to stand and we're going to dive right back into a precious song celebrating the cross. Some of you came this morning frustrated with what you don't see God doing. Somebody's watching this on a smartphone and there is a situation of unresolved anger and hurt and you've been asking God to fix it and he has continued to move in such a way that you don't see what he's doing. I hope Jeremiah's been an example to you, number one, that you're not alone. There is no fairy tale Valentine's Day walk with God that never experiences conflict, pain, struggle. Nobody gets to follow Jesus and never deal with doubt or discouragement. So if that's where you are, if that's the seat you sit in this morning, listen to me, you're not alone. A man named Jeremiah, far greater than any person on this campus. A man whose life was celebrated for his faith, yet his frailty struggled with God. But the most beautiful thing about his struggle, and we see this over and over, and we will continue to see it over and over, is that he brought it back to the Lord. He did not complain elsewhere. He did not look for the pop psychology of social media that is a terribly poisonous soup of mixed, incorrect religious views. No, no, no. He came to the Lord. And that's what I want you to do. If there's something between you and the Lord this morning, I want you to come to this altar. I don't know what it is. It's none of my business. But you know, why don't you bring it? Symbolically, moving to the altar to lay it down. No one will bother you. You can pray right by yourself. If you'd like prayer, we have people here who will do that, and they will respect whatever degree of distance you would like them to to pray with you. And you may say, Pastor, I, I actually feel like I'm in a decent place with the Lord, but there's tension in my marriage. There's tension between me and someone else. Well, that begins with you. You may not even be the culprit. You may not even be the cause, but why don't you bring that to the Lord? So I, I'm going to say amen, and when I do, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and this altar is going to be open for just a few moments. I want you to come. After we have a time of prayer and reflection, we're going to get to meet some of our newest members, and we're going to be dismissed. The next three minutes could be the most important of your week. In the words of Jesus, count the cost of not responding. Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.